Hello and welcome back to Voicecraft. I encourage you to take this podcast on a walk, to stay with it through its journey as it gathers energy, shares themes and ideas, and draws them together with intensity and purpose. It was recorded in May this year with Daniel Garner of OG Rose, initially in response to an invitation he made for us to record a dialogue on his channel, in response to the topic, The Phenomenology of Voice. Reflecting now some months later, this podcast offers a comprehensive vision into the criticality of the philosophy of voice, of crafting voice together in our cultural moment, and grapples with the challenges and potentials this mode of being and relating encounters. Now releasing in September, this dialogue is also an invitation to participate, as all these podcasts are, but today brings a special invitation to participate in the Voicecraft Academy course titled Transformative Philosophy. In fact, this conversation inspired the naming of a module in that course, to be led by OG Rose, who you are about to hear. Voicecraft.io slash academy is where to find it. And it begins October 10. Today. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to be here to speak. I love the Voicecraft community. The uh, Philosophy of Black series was a complete blast. I'm, I'm so glad that Cadell organized that with, with Ebert and you. So much fun. I have enjoyed so much getting to know you. I've enjoyed such a chance to speak with you in the Voicecraft community, all the wonderful people over there. And I'm always taken, because I think it's really important, on the focus on the presencing of people in a conversation, the, the nature of speaking, the question of how does recording a conversation change the dynamics? How does the very tone and the very way we approach other people transform how those people engage with us? And I just love the name, voice craft, right? We don't even think about that because so often it makes me think, you know, everyone, uh, the famous David Foster Wallace graduation speech where he talks about those two fish are swimming along and someone comes along, you know, one older fish comes along and says, the water's great today, isn't it, boys? And swims. And the two little fish look at one another and go, what the heck is water? And it's kind of this idea that you're always in water, so you don't even know it's there. So likewise, it's funny because speaking and voice is something we're always doing where we don't even, like, think about speaking and voice. And likewise, we're so often in relationships, in community, that we don't even think about relationship and community. It's always something we're doing and it's not something that we focus on. And I think that can, and I always just appreciate your attentiveness to how not paying attention to those sort of things can have negative impacts on the dynamics or lead to different missed opportunities. So I, I always appreciate that. And again, Tim, it's just really great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. You want me to just take it from there? Right? You just take it from it there, is. Mr. Adlin. You just go. Well, okay. All right. I didn't expect to go this way, but when it comes to speaking to each other, speaking with a recording button on, and we just had a little moment of it there, we're always swimming in a soup of expectation. Oh, yeah. Um, right? A resonance, a call and response, a certain frequency to that. And, you know, minimally, I just mean a kind of pacing, mm. but also tones of affinity, intimacy, neutrality there's a, a sensing of who we are in relation to where we are mm. and what we're doing. And um, that's a lot and that's very abstract. And in any conversation that's seeking to see well, you know, see deeply, 
and come to a point of understanding that maybe furthers what it was before in that sense a conversation that's seeking some to fruit some wisdom then the relational dynamics the contextual dynamics that enable the presencing of a given piece of content become extremely important and so we could think about that from i suppose uh, using some concepts like perception and expression and maybe think about epistemic methods almost like consilience or or just the way that we exist in reality in terms of like a parallax view the relationship between our eyes our brain and these different senses and there's a capacity to wake up in some sense to the manner by which we are already framing things the way we're already perceiving them and to help each other dwell in those frames of understanding and to open the door to others we meet a lot of all too human dynamics that can make that very very difficult and they're so intimate and they're so imminent like it's it's they're already gone almost the moment you come to conceive of them like how to think about one's prism of perception when that prism can just as well be a prison and so there's something about the way of presencing where we are in relation to someone else that seems to help in the coming into actually seeing that and to be able to work with dynamics like collaboration and and competition in ways that can ultimately be more generative and hopefully not to get as trapped in a particular pocket of disagreement when that might not serve a broader perspective or broader understanding, not to say that those pockets of disagreement aren't important, not to say that competition and the the clarification and the rigor of consistency and logic and all these types of dynamics aren't important. So just as some kind of initial thoughts on those topics and presencing, that's why it's, for me, the beginnings of why it's relevant to deep philosophical work and the, the project of understanding and being able to make wiser decisions in the world at all because we can just compromise our own effort at seeing so quickly yes um by the way in which we we treat ourselves and and ultimately each other so well it's it's so interesting to me because the human creature or how we operate the moment that we think about what we're doing we can't do it it's like that old Nietzsche story of the centipede where the centipede's going along using all its legs and an ant, I think it's an ant, asks the centipede, man, how do you use all those legs? And the centipede's like, oh, I don't know. And, the centipede, and it dies because it, it doesn't know how it uses the legs and it, it just uses them. Um, and similarly, the moment I'm like, hey, talk about the phenomenology of voice. It's like, frick, what do you, you know, it's like, it's funny because there's this human element exactly of what you're saying where you're looking at the frameworks that people talk and operate in that is necessary to reach mutual understanding. So you need to do it. But then if you do it, you're like the centipede and you're like, oh, you're like kind of, but it's so weird because I think also too, say in the Zoom world where you're kind of forced, if I, you know, it's all, I really don't like how Zuckerberg used the word meta for it, but it's very meta in the sense of, you know, that you're speaking to someone. I think it's so interesting with the Zoom camera that I can see my own image as I'm talking to you. You know, usually if I'm in per- like person speaking with you, I don't know what I look like, but now I know what I look like and that it's already hard enough 
to have a good conversation requires getting lost in the conversation. And now you have this element of seeing your image, which can snap you out of it. You become like that centipede. So you have to fight that dynamic. You have to fight the dynamic that is being recorded. But it's also kind of this funny thing where you're like, well, you want to record. It's like um, like when I, whenever I would do like music improvisations at Unoya, you're like, shoot, I wish I would. I'll never forget that session I had with Evan Mausewitz that went on for two. It was like the craziest thing. I was amazing, but it wasn't recorded. And yet that's part of the beauty that it wasn't recorded. And yet that's part of the horror that it wasn't recorded. And so there's this wild dynamic now that I feel like the internet really brings out where you're simultaneously facing the meta dimension, which takes you out of the experience, but also the meta is good because it could help you discover a mutual framework. But it's funny because what if we discover the mutual frameworks, but the very dynamics of discovering those frameworks makes it difficult to actually do the community and actually getting lost in the conversation. And those, and what's wild to me is those are all relatively new dynamics, I think, that come into existence with Zoom and talking with people like you're in Australia, I'm in you know, Virginia or different things. And how that's really great because now you can speak to people you'd never speak to before, but it brings with it this wildly interesting meta dimension. And it makes me think there's, um, C.S. Lewis had this essay where he said something along the lines is he said, is if people get together for the purpose of having a good conversation, they never do. Like if everyone talks about, hey, we're going to have a good conversation today at two o'clock, we're going to have a good conversation. It sucks. It's, it's no good, right? Like you can't, you can't do that. It just has to happen, right? And it also makes me think of his great essay in the uh, meditation that a tool said, where he talks about the difference between looking at a ray of light and looking through a way of light. So for example, when you come into the, uh, the tool shed, you see the ray of light coming through to the, and you're looking at the ray of light. But there is a difference between that and looking through where you step into the light and look up through the hole in the roof. Now you're looking through it and you can't really do one or the other. It's different ways of, of viewing. Well, look at Zoom here, baby. Zoom's basically creating a dynamic where you're kind of doing both at the same time. And it's so strange. And yet it seems like it opens new avenues while simultaneously creating new challenges. What we need today, and you could even say it has political ramifications, if you have a world of diversity and difference that's not able to get lost in the joy of the other person or lost you know, in the flow of the dynamic, because it's too difficult to overcome the meta dynamic, the, the meta dimension of the Zoom or the internet, then you'll have so much potential, but it won't even be realized. So to me, kind of the awareness of that entire dynamic, that entire schema that we just, just, just described is so important because we're in it now. Like we're in it yeah. and we're doing it. And, and yet yeah. drawing attention to it is a threat to the flow and yet is necessary for the flow because you are already in it. So it, it's, a, it's a fascinating to me, unique phenomenological experience of communication, yes. community, and so on and so forth. Yes, there's something about the ever-present opportunity to dip into humility, mm. which really helps to accept the opportunity for flow. Yeah. Even if, you know, as it feels to me all the time, I'm going to fall off that wave, there's a sense in which, okay, it is possible to just breathe and try again, you know, and the affordance, the way one's treated by someone else, whether the listening in some important sense is um, not only welcoming, but what would be the word, it, not so much holding to an ideal, but, um, but nudging in that direction. It's kind of like 
an orientation towards seeing that spark of possibility in someone and not so much just imagining it, like seeing it right there. People care so much about mattering with what they have to say, unless they're so mired in a kind of cynicism that they're not really talking to you. They're sort of trapped in themselves. But to the degree there is some sense of wanting to come into connection with someone, that possibility for like a good conversation, it's always present. It's as present as one's humility will allow something mm. like that. And then there's some other things too, but, um, but that, that, that truly is a consistent experience. It's like a, um, a consistent relationship to my own failure mm. to, to find the words in some important sense. Well, yeah. well, I mean, what you're saying on humility and flow, I, I think is such a big deal. There was a, a gentleman, Timothy Keller, and he'll talk about, so what's the, you know, so you don't want to be selfish or self-focused because that's bad. We all know that's bad. But then he also says, but you know, there can be something about self-let, like kind of selfless that can be humiliation. And you're always making a point to talk about how you're less than other people. And he said, that's bad because you're kind of still focused on yourself. You're thinking about how you're less than other people. And when he talks about is the middle, he talks about self-forgetfulness, a sort of state where you forget yourself. You're just using yourself. He talks about, you know, like your thumb, right? You, do, you don't really think about your thumb very much. You just use it, right? If you, if you spent your time thinking about your thumb, there'd be something, um, dysfunctional about you, even if you spend all your time talking about how your thumb doesn't matter, because that would be dysfunctional as well, right? So it's like focus. And so there's this notion where to really flow, to have the right dynamic, there's a kind of self-forgetfulness where you're not thinking about yourself. But that's so difficult because human beings are status obsessed. That's like Alan Bottine, I think, status anxiety and different things. They're always, I think there is like homo uh, hygoctesis by Louis Dumont talks about humans are naturally hierarchical. He did like a anthropological study of the formation of different caste systems and different things. And there's something about humans that really struggle not to think in terms of hierarchy. They really struggle not to think in terms of status. But now people know they're supposed to say they don't care about status. So when they go into conversation online, they make a point to say they don't care about that. But that's just part of the script to establish your status, because now you have the highest status because you said you don't care about status. So there's yeah. always an additional meta level that can be added unless you genuinely forget yourself, unless you genuinely can truly phenomenologically get lost in the other person. And that is a skill, I think. I think that is a sort of skill. I think that gets into... Um, intrinsic motivation. I think it, you have to be for the ideas. And it's just interesting to me because in the same way that I think there's been a lot of talk of, well, there's kind of an idea that if you got rid of the borders of nations and you have, you have a globalized world, right? That everyone would just kind of come together and see that they're not so different after all. Well, actually what looks like, it looks like globalization and pluralism leads to fascism, like a lot of separation of smaller tribes. You know, people don't really like diversity very much, it turns out, when it actually counts for something. You know, people will talk a big game, but actually diversity is very difficult. Like actually loving your neighbor when your neighbor doesn't think like you is an entirely different ballgame. Where in the same way, when the internet allows you to communicate with everyone and allows you to have constant communication and, inter and you know, um, integration with other people, Oh, you actually find out that you are status obsessed. Oh, you actually find out that you are naturally inclined to always be thinking about what you're going to say. It's kind of a revelation of one's own motives. It can be a revelation in the same way that when you encounter true diversity, that actually you have to do the work to actually love your neighbor. It's not just given. 
It's not just there. And I'm, and so it's like, for me, another reason why discussing quote unquote voicecraft and presencing is so important is because everyone now is increasingly in communication with everyone else. Borders between nations are indeed going away. And it is not the case that human beings just naturally um, overcome their ego. They don't just naturally learn to presence with other people. You have to have these meta conversations about the frameworks that they're operating in, the different values that people have and why they ascribe to them. But that's very difficult because you have to figure out the art of how to do it without destroying the flow, which we just talked about earlier, is naturally in conflict with the flow dynamic. So to, mm. to me, it's kind of like the stakes are now very high on figuring out how to engage in the presencing and different things that you're describing, precisely because you are in a world where you are so interconnected with radical diversity, with radical difference and radical communication, which I think in a Hegelian sense is an opportunity for a better and greater world, but only if we can overcome our natural status, um, seeking confirmation bias, tribal tendencies. And then of course, what's that looks like? You'd have to get into economics and the formation of society and tech. Of course, you'd have to get into the specifics of that. But to me, it's, 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 it, to me, that also presents a challenge to learning how to converse and how to bring oneself into conversations to, to rise to the occasion of the world today. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many aspects to the conversation. I mean, there's so many aspects to the project, really. I care, obviously, as much about the contextual setting for the engaging in interaction. So one of the things I'm doing at the moment is um, sort of planning a series, hopefully it'll be a series if the first one goes well, of um, monthly events, local events in Melbourne. And there's a warehouse space uh, filled with many rooms and there's an upstairs and there's, a, there's an outdoors and there's a kitchen. So there's, there's a sort of a, a space that's large enough to explore oneself. And then there's also places that are large enough for the whole cohort, the whole group of people to gather. And then there are spaces that are sufficient spaces to break out and to have smaller groups with different kinds of workshops and facilitations. And the opening of that space, the everything from the invitation into the sense of autonomy and freedom that one has to step in to interaction, that's all so important to consider when it comes time to actually then step forth and say something, um, particularly mm -hmm. if there might be lots of different values in the room, different ideas about, for instance, how we all felt about being locked down for so long sure. and uh, what we might have felt about various government regulations, vaccines, how that relates to the broader moment for society and um, human life as we find ourselves in the world at the moment. There's so many ways that that particular conversation could fail to get off the ground. In fact, that conversation never really gets off the ground, right? We don't have a place where those conversations really get off the ground in any way that's felt to be desirable, really. I mean, you can definitely find places where people go at it hammer and tongs or or they're sort of more or less on the same side, sort of beating the other side over the head. It's not an easy thing to even conceptualize what it would be for a group of people of sufficient difference to nevertheless gather and, and appreciate the value that that difference was bringing. And so this speaks to notions like the sacred, mm. the idea of a cathedral, hey, somewhere mm. so beautiful to gather that itself was a, a shining light of possibility that 
was a symbol for the possibility of um, the connection of different threads of value into one, even if uh, some of those threads might be felt to be more relevant and important to me rather than you, at least on the face of it. Because, you know, maybe that other aspect is somewhere deep in the shadow that can be profoundly meaningful to engage with. Uh, but of course, the, the very presencing, let's say, of that kind of material, of what that would mean for one's associations and uh, various ego structures of momentum in the world, all of that, or at least some of it might be up for grabs. And so yeah, it's a very delicate, it's a very delicate balance. And then on the other hand, none of this, I, I don't think about any of this from a position of, um, well, lightness, yes, but n not from a position of weakness. What word am I looking for? Where delicate becomes something flimsy or just, oh, sure. or just whatever. Like there's something that has to be profoundly strong in one's connection to themselves and what matters and its value as such in order to be able to be with difference in a way that is well coherent fundamentally if one's not grounded in something then one will come into contact with difference and either entirely reject it to the point of not being able to perceive it or could be borne along by it and taken over by it and um in that sense there's no dialogic relationship there and there's no relationship of you know many in relation to the one or two in relation to the one it's 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 simply it's a kind of war or it's a kind of um or it's a kind of such a deep kind of naivety yeah. that um you're now just on the other army and the war's coming and there would be a better way to express that but it certainly wouldn't be that, that 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 shamanic work of a sense of the harmony that's possible even in the face of difference um let's say it's certainly not something that's going to be capable of reorienting its way in any kind of imminent more proximal sense towards resonance from a place of dissonance so it's 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 a funny thing it's it's something that has to be very gentle but also very strong how do we discern when to be one or the other what what is Absolutely. that presence that is gentle and strong that's something that that's very interesting to me not necessarily as a conceptual project but just in that sense of being appropriately flexible to the world that is beyond one's capacity to hold in that sense that we we share our presence with that beyond us and in that way we participate with that beyond us and change coming through is something we have to be in relationship to if we have any sort of humility any any kind of wisdom and yet there are times when it is time to hold it's such a fascinating dynamic it's like there's a there's an and that's where the, the sacrifice element becomes super interesting and and where where I have like, a, I have a very positive regard for the ego structure, which is just a trivial thing to say for anyone who's, you know, more interested in depth psychology, psychoanalysis, you know, the ego gets a, a very hard time in the world of more new age associated philosophies, or perhaps slightly more naive ways of thinking about the psyche and the relationship to transformation. But it's such a challenging thing to be a human being, to be an ego that has to, it's, it's so insufficient and yet utterly sufficient in the task of being insufficient <laughs> you oh. know like like I, I i'm not enough and yet my knowing that and, and 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 stepping forth regardless and being and being aware and open to then return like to reorient to that place which can discern the next momentum can begin to look to integrate something into itself up or or, or to explore another possibility 
to feel that inner calling back to that which can reconstruct a way of being in the world, a way of being with others, which which is now not locked to the limited image of my ego's imagination previously, which might utterly deny the real life-affirming or the necessary death of something in the moment, right? I mean, whatever that life or death process is, like whatever, whatever of, of, of significance for the sake of, we could use words like health, we could also use words like intelligence. I mean, it really depends in some sense what the particular value is shining through on the particular thing of worth. But, you know, and just to add one other thing into the mix here, which maybe is not the clearest, but we are in a place at the moment in society and in life in general, where the underground of what matters, like that what people really care about, like what they're really standing on, who they really are in relationship to what they love, what they really love. So much of that is uncertain. So much of that people are unrooted from. And so the very conversation about what matters itself is almost it's almost beyond the current point of where the discussion is in terms of sincerity and irony. It's hard itself to even bring that into presence. First off, um, I, uh, I need to come to this place you're, you're setting up in Melbourne. That sounds amazing. Uh, so that's outstanding. There's a piano there. There's a piano to too? Oh, There's man, a we piano jam there off. in the hallway. And every time I walk past it, I think, fucking hell, Daniel would be on that thing. <laughs> and it would be exact, like it's exactly what I would hope for. That sounds divine. So. so I'm going to have to get over there. Second, everything you said is fantastic. And I love the example of the um, cathedral. Um, so a few things. One, um, basically most of human civilization, there's been enough um, separation of people who are very, very different from one another to where dynamics and, co and conversation can be relatively horizontal and it not lead to a lot of trouble. But you now are going to have to start being vertical so that you don't run into each other all the time. And vertical would be that meta dimension where you see, oh, okay, you value freedom over justice, but you see, I don't really see why freedom matters if you don't have justice, because then it would be bad. Oh, wait, I'm misunderstanding you. By freedom, you actually mean you in your own individual life. You're not an anarchist or a libertarian, blah, 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 blah. Figuring all of that and the different breakdown of values requires a meta dimension. But of course, the meta dimension is a threat to the very conversation because it kind of pulls you out of it. So this is a very difficult right. skill that I think most of human civilization has not had to deal with so much. And when I say that humans do not naturally like difference. So for example, if I'm just wearing hand-me-down sports coats that I got from my older brother because I don't like spending money on clothes, but I run into someone at the meeting who has a really nice new jacket, that makes me reflect on myself. I never thought before about my sports jacket or different things, but now that I see one wearing a nice one who made different choices on where he put his money relative to clothing, that makes me reflect on myself and I become irritable. Um, all difference has an effect of making people reflect on themselves and we don't like reflecting on ourselves very much in the same way that a video camera, if it's pointed toward the screen, that it is um, recording on two. It creates that um, eternal regression effect in the same, like two mirrors, they reflect forever. What ends up happening is human being, it's like we talk about our lack series. When we reflect on ourselves, we're like a video camera pointed at ourselves, And that unveils this um, kind of groundlessness where we sort of go, why did I choose to get my clothes from Goodwill instead of buy new ones? I can't remember. I don't know. What, what is my ultimate epistemic justification mm -hmm. for that? Oh, I don't have one. What else do I not have one for? And we go nuts and we don't like that. And so then instead what we do is we never talk to that guy who bought the nice outfit and made me reflect on myself because I don't like that guy because he, he unveiled to me the groundlessness of all my um, epistemic uh, decisions. I don't like that guy.
Well, guess what? The internet makes everyone encounter situations like that times a million. And it turns out we don't like that very much. And so what we end up doing is going toward power dynamics. And it makes me think about, you know, um, Habermas will talk about communicative rationality, which is this idea that we could continue the enlightenment and democracy and so on and so forth if we like through communication, through talking, because that's how you can establish a shared good and a shared truth and a shared meaning and you can organize society accordingly. Well, I think there's some truth to that. I'm a, I'm a pretty, I'm pretty big on communicative rationality, but I think it doesn't work without the meta dimension. And people, it's almost like sometimes we think that you learn, and you know how I talked about like water at the beginning? We all know that if you throw someone into a pool who's never swam before, they might drown, right? Well, conversation is kind of similar. If you just throw people into it and say, hey, talk about your most important values with people who don't agree with them and see if you can come with a reasonable consensus or a reasonable compromise. You know, I bet you that's not going to work. I just, I just got to, I don't think that's going to work. And for me, the failure to appreciate the quote unquote meta dimension, as I'm calling it, the vertical, which is necessary to avoid the power dynamic that you're describing, requires that it for communicative rationality to work. And in order for difference, not just to lead to endless static anxiety, existential reflection and othering the other that causes conflict, we're going to require a meta dimension, but doing this in a manner that does not destroy community like we said, it's always a risk at the beginning, is very, very difficult. So how do you do it? Well, I, I agree with what you're saying on this dynamic between strength, gentleness, so on and so forth. I think it helps for me to think about it. Um, if I have a baby and I have a really strong guy holding the baby, you know, this really small, frail child, what would be the best use of strength in that situation to you know, you know, crush the baby against the chest. No, to actually hold the baby, to balance your strength and to, and to hold the baby. And actually where the strength would come out is if the baby starts screaming and you don't get angry and start yelling at the baby, right? So there's a dynamic when you're holding the baby where it's not appropriate to squeeze the baby, and, but to have a mental strength. So there's a mixture between strength and gentleness, right? Most of human history, when you're around people who share your values, the breakdown of the balance between strength and weakness tends to be kind of given. It gets kind of integrated into your everydayness because the people around you are similar enough to where it's going to fall on a similar range of how you need to break down, say, um, quietness, kindness, strength, discernment. These things are going to be more on a general, general, they're going to be more similar because you share similar ways of life. Well, now, as you're interacting with increasingly more difference and trying to communicate in presence with people who are different from you, it turns out that you have to rethink the, co the correct proper breakdown between different values per conversation because it changes. And that is a radical meta dimension in the same way, like you're talking about strength and weakness. If one is cooking, I love the metaphor of cooking because I think it's helpful here. You want to have sugar in your pie. It'd be pretty bad if you didn't have some kind of sugar in your pie, but if it was just sugar, it would be, it wouldn't be a pie, right? You know, so you need sugar, you need butter, you need a crust. Well, likewise, you need all these values now. You need kindness, you need strength, you need gentleness, you need elegance, you need the control of your voice, you know, to kind of gauge what's a empathy to, oh, that's a, uh, that's a pain point. I'm going to avoid it. It's like cooking now. Every conversation has a kind of cooking element to kind of gauge the right breakdown of variables. But if it's a conversation with five people all around the world, 
the breakdown of values for person one could be different from the breakdown of values for person um, two, three, and four. Yeah. Oh, and as you're talking to person one, person five is listening and they don't share that breakdown of values. Mm-hmm. And you have to take that into account, which is a radically complex dynamic that I think humans are basically encountering anew. I think this is new. Yes, I understand there are trade routes. Yes, I understand that people, there have been periods of diversity and so on and so forth. But the interconnectability of the internet technology, of the different jobs and people are doing, I think creates such an interesting dynamic, which is to say that the work you focus on, on that presencing, being bringing to consciousness that presencing and the bringing to consciousness the dynamics of conversation are just like the most important thing ever. Certainly seems to be very important. I mean, a couple of things come into mind there is given the acceleration of technology, uh, the, the paradigmatic changes that we are going through, then of course we have people who are um, not only geographically separated from us with relative concerns, but also paradigmatically anchored slightly differently. And there are very real, (laughs) there's a very real tension about whether or not this world or that world is one we actually want to move into. Mm. So there's also this human in relationship with the not quite human in the same way. Mm. I mean, that's always sort of been there, right? Obviously, tribally speaking. But now it's like, well, the more techno-utopian types, you know, I saw Mm. um, Grimes on Lex Friedman the other day, uh, Mm. Grimes being a, you know, famous sort of pop star, but one that's kind of very much embraced the, there's got elements of that hyper-humanism sort of, yeah, Elon. Oh, sure put a chip in my head too kind of thing and there's an attitude towards technology which seems well differentially held right mm. not everybody seems so thrilled and so that's just one example of something that's a very practical but energetically present looming rift in the vision of Absolutely. the future of man and how to navigate that is maybe not the precise purpose of this conversation, but how we come to face these values is obviously something we're talking about. So, Oh, I think that's yeah, very that's- relevant uh, because, you know, you have that picture of the angel of history. I think the Klee painting that Walter Benjamin talks about, and he talks about this angel kind of being pulled through history and it looks back and the pile of debris is stacked, you know, higher and higher and the angel can't stop it just being pulled along. And it's this famous mm-hmm. reflection that Walter Benjamin has on the mm-hmm. uh, angel of history. There is a sense which, um, you know, I know people like Francis Fukuyama in his book on biotechnology sort of says we shouldn't just kind of roll over and accept wherever technology is going, you know, we should kind of, we have a say. At the same time, the game, game theory dynamics are very difficult to stop that are heading towards, say, everyone using uh, genetic alterations on their kids to make them the smartest. And even if they outlaw it, the, some people will secretly use it. And what if America outlaws it and China uses it and so on and so forth, and you get these dynamics? Well, the same goes with, say, heading toward a Kurzweil singularity and so on and so forth. So there is this sense where you're being pulled towards something, which then the question is the following. At what rate do you want to be pulled toward it? What do you want to condition yourself to be like as you approach it? And what parts of it do you want to keep? And what parts of it do you not want to keep, right? Of whatever this kind of thing is that's coming. Well, if you're not doing the meta stuff that we're describing here, you're just being pulled along like that angel of history. 
there's no ownership of the future basically. I mean, that's kind of the funny thing. Without, if all you're doing is the horizontal, if I use this Kierkegaardian language, but never any of the vertical, then you are kind of pulled along by the technologies. I think there's very, very good reason to think, and I was talking with Dr. Last about this, I'm in no way whatsoever anti-technology, but I like to stress conditionalism, like Hegel and Dr. Last and I will talk about, is that the future is better than the past if we get there. <laughs> you know, we may not get there though, because humans uh, fail to rise up to the conditionality to handle it. And the issue is, we kind of just think, oh, we get increased communication with other people. That'll be great because humans are naturally communal creatures. So they'll get along. No, they go back to fascism. Oh, we're going to get technology and we won't have to go to work and we'll have UBI and it will be great. No, people sit around bored and they're having pathologies and a meaning crisis. Maybe UBI is great if people meet the condition of having intrinsic motivation. So they use that time to do something productive and they have meaning. Maybe interconnectivity of the internet is wonderful if people can encounter difference and sees difference as exciting as opposed to threatening but there's not a guarantee that they will do that unless humans condition themselves in their particular life in their particular being to develop the skills and the ways of thinking to so act but we don't tend to think that way we don't tend to think in terms of human conditionalism like conditioning yourself as a subject to be able to handle approaching a singularity or approaching interconnectivity. We basically just act like once the technology presents itself, we'll know what to do and we'll, we'll change our values accordingly. And so we're unprepared. We're thrown in a swimming pool and we don't know how to swim. We don't think about the dynamics of voice. We don't think about the dynamics of conversation. And then we want to go and have a conversation with the entire world. And for some weird reason, that doesn't work out so well. And so that's the, that's the kind of thing where I think it's the balance between the two. Yes. Okay. So let me see if I can work with, I think you're very right to, well, it's very helpful to think of the axis of the horizontal and the vertical and mm. the vertical, you've, you use the word meta. And I associate well, that with the cathedral you were mentioning as well, like right. building a cathedral, so on. Totally, totally. And, you know, what's often buried beneath the cathedral, bearing in mind, I would actually love to, I would love to go underneath some cathedrals, like in the Vatican or Fen. Yeah, that'd be cool. Up the other day, like I've that they've got all sorts of stuff there but just like in my sort of limited metaphorical mind what's beneath the cathedral is often uh, tombs you know, people are dead there certainly they weren't the ones i visited in england and so in order for that axis that vertical axis to have a sense of groundedness when it goes meta right when it when it looks to integrate various lateral domains different areas of understanding values i've certainly experienced a lot in my life and might well be perceived by some people in this conversation it's never far away from me this presence of being seen in this way to be somewhat ungrounded oh that's so airy you know just up there what it, what is it you know what's it really mean or how's it really really but more than that one of the things i i used to get and i, I felt quite misseen in this way i've been in relationship with this for a long time and i've done a lot of work with it so i feel like in i can talk about it in a way that's um it's not charged for me like it was in my early 20s, even actually before then. But if there isn't a grounding, let's say, in the heart, in the body, in actually really breathing through what matters in a particular situation, really meeting in address, as, as you so well speak about, that, that other who you're in touch with, if there's not some resonant sense of this one has suffered a little like I have, that we're relating in that domain of... Like, I'm not above you, meta, better than you somehow. Like, I'm not going to the same place 
you are underneath the cathedral, right? In, in back to the soil. There's that sense of if one can enter into relationship before philosophy in a, in a sense or a, before a certain kind of abstract philosophy i would really talk about philosophy as such as being this whole process ultimately. Sure. oh yeah 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 um but before that various vertical leaps into the air rather than say before at least i can say that if there isn't felt to be a touch between hearts or at least that the feet are rooted in that same soil as mm. though that we are of that same value ultimately that we're of that same dignity then whatever that jump higher is going to be misperceived ultimately as being inherently unworthy to have a stake in any conversation that matters because it simply doesn't have the skin in the game it's kind of felt it's felt to be like that how can i even trust this person their energy isn't settled doesn't have a you know what who are you to tell me about you don't have a home basically yeah, yeah, yeah. you know so there's something about that integration of those horizontal and vertical axes which in its most capacitant form has developed its relationship with um i suppose that <laughs> that it's always coming back down to earth at the end of the day you know, it's really funny you say all that because about two weeks ago, I was, um, I was thinking about kind of the vertical and horizontal because I was trying to write a paper and it kind of clicked. I, you know, it's funny. It's like, you know, why is it that I always forget that vertical would also go down? You know, when you have the X and Y axis, you know, vertical, I always go up, right? But actually vertical, you're not actually truly vertical if you don't go up and down, right? Like, so like if we think of the meta dimension as also including the ground, like looking up from below people, then that helps remove the looking down at people because sure, it's almost like one of the problems is that when we get meta, we only actually go up and look from a bird's eye view, but it's almost yeah. like we also have to do a mole's eye view, as weird as that yeah. sounds, because I was also thinking about the mole people as you were talking about the cathedrals and underground. I read a book about mole people who live totally. as moles. Yeah, and the cathedral. It's in painful the to be a mole. Well, what's funny is you're not fully vertical or meta unless you do the mole side. If you're only doing mm. the angel side, where you're like above it all, sure, that is a part of the meta, but there's also a mole side and that would, and that would help you be humble. And that would get into ground, that would get into heart. And it's just so, it was so interesting to me because I'd never thought about it before. It's like, you know, I, I forget the vertical because the vertical includes the heart, the vertical axis goes, it's interesting because the horizontal like goes on forever. We have no problem thinking about the horizontal as left and right. But when we think about the vertical, we tend to only think of up. We forget that vertical would also include down. And it's funny. So it's like when we talk about these meta dimensions, it's exactly what you're saying. You also, you're not fully meta, quote unquote, if we use that language, or philosophical, if we just use philosophy as the word for meta, because I agree for you. Basically, philosophy is basically inherently meta because you're, it's analyzing the very mechanisms of operation of thinking and values and so on and so on. But it's uh, looking at the ray of light, not just through the ray of light. But the reason you look at the ray of light in the tool shed is so you look better through it, not so you can go get a uh, PhD somewhere telling people about the ray of light. You want to get better at looking through it. Anyway, the point is that if we don't do vertical up and down, 
vertical in the air and as a mole person, then we're only halfway there. And then we become, I think, pathological. Exactly what you're saying. When you do it halfway, it becomes, you're not, you, it, it becomes a bad thing because it's like neurotic. You got to do the whole thing. I think I mentioned it in the philosophy of black three is like people will talk about goodness, beauty, and truth. But the problem is if you don't have all three, they actually become bad things. Like for example, if you have beauty and goodness, but not truth, you're just manipulating people. If you have goodness and truth, but you don't have beauty, nobody cares. If you have, um, if you have a uh, beauty and, and uh, truth, it's not good. And I can go on. You have to have all of it. It's just interesting to think exactly on what you're saying. You're not actually mm -hmm. doing the vertical or philosophical well if you don't include the groundedness with your mm -hmm. um, big picture thinking. And it, I think it all goes together like that. All right. All right. Let me try something here, which is going to be a bit challenging for me because I want to try and there's three or four balls in the air and it'd be good to bring them all together because, well, we can we can create something together here. So I love um, creating. <laughs> all right so we have the vertical and the horizontal we have notions of a paradigmatic transition we have notions of values in search of a kind of harmony but are in some sense you know there's a weighing and so there's 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 oscillation there there's um the requirement really to particularize to a particular time and instance goodness truth and beauty which may not necessarily all be together and may through philosophy we might say have some capacity for ongoing sort of calibration both reflexive and as a mode of being sort of through the light and then of course notions of, of voice and the phenomenology mm. of voice and that sort of thing which was the initial sort of invited frame here and, and mm. it would be good to sort of bring that into the fold again and there's also a second person dynamic here of philosophy as a kind of process involving others and that there's a certain inadequacy we might each have alone if we aren't properly able to come into relationship with others and ultimately you know mm. the world i mean it's philosophy is not an isolated activity and, and it can be criticized as such even though i'm not saying we can't do philosophy sure. ourselves sitting down in a dialogic relation and we're interconnected and all the rest of it so these and more are some of the balls in the air and the reason why i'm saying them all is i'm looking for a way into yeah okay so in the face of so much change, in the context of the liminal, in situations where it's a bit too trite to say, we as humanity don't seem to know what to do. Not really sure the contents of our remembering worth preserving and reformulating. What is called in us to bring itself forward should we actually want to have interaction that is wise about what matters in the broadest of all senses I mean, what a ridiculously grandiose thing but in some sense that's what an element of philosophy is about you know people saying what the fuck they think is going on where those descriptions and prescriptions are so massive people talking about death what happens afterwards how society should be organized who the, who what the nature of the human being is and all of the status and hierarchy 
that is forged in to the very medium and channel for understanding, the very philosophy for understanding that then serves as the basis upon which interaction occurs, like in some sense the deep philosophy of a culture, that relationship between the mythos and, you know, we could take the mythos, the logos and the pathos as Bard speaks about here nicely. I I really do like those categories, Mm -hmm. the sort of stories we have about ourselves and the sense of what's really real that we have to actually contend with and remember and then also sort of different frameworks and um, rigorous sort of paradigmatic understandings we might have for all of that. Mm. What I'm getting at is what of the soul, you know, what of the soul that, that is rooted in the depths, right? That in some sense knows the heights partly through that crack that comes in like the light it can aspire to, but also knows the heights because of the trapdoor back down right um the bringing forth of the very core of our suffering essentially the core of our suffering and where we've been able to love in the face of that like to the degree talking about mole people right this is ridiculous uh, what i'm about to say but i was talking to someone the other day and i won't mention any names not someone in the online space but his sort of mode of response to the sort of coming collapse that he foresaw was one that was basically about building underground houses, you know, full on mole response, right? When everything's fucked, I'll be in there. And I mean, there's not much of a sense of what's happening above the world because that actually still matters, right? Your mole cavern is not going to last, you know? I'm glad you're doing it, but only if that can be properly integrated with what's above it. Now, the story of this particular person in this case and why it links up with this uh, vertical axis thing is that um, there's just such a depth of suffering and wounding that was best we could say is that it's still in process of metabolization. That would be the the loving thing to say. Mm -hmm. Another way to look at it would be like, oh, man, that is stuck. That is stuck there and that is painful and it's almost catastrophic. It's like catastrophically wounded. You know, in terms of how the the psyche as a whole can know itself as whole and love itself as whole, but also enter into relationships with others. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense in that if the healing of ourselves is not something which is in process of healing, then this lump in the throat, this this trauma in the body, in the heart, whatever that blockage is there, when the being brings itself to get a view of what's going on, there very well could be something that is felt to disenable the capacity to really know another in the full depth of the suffering, but also the mm. the loving of that possibility of the human being and the actuality of the human being. Yes. So there, there's these different blocks to perception as such, which in some sense are entirely not abstract, you know. We can certainly talk about them that way, and they're not of the logos. They're not of the mind in some important sense, although the mind's totally related in in how the ultimate <clears throat> process seems to work. But there's something about, and when it comes to the phenomenology of voice, then, and we can make it a bit more practical and recognise, maybe it's an argument with a partner or a close friend, or in a group context, something's heated. There's a sense in which um, I've maybe felt to be wounded by something. I've been challenged by something. My identities, I've I've compromised some sort of value I hold, but I don't want to quite admit that. And I'm in pain. And and so I'm kind of, I've retreated now and I can get the oversight on it. And I can recognize with like a real clarity 
something which might be a good idea to happen if only we could implement it. But there's a sense in which my being has not yet breathed that through appropriately so as to actually address with love in relationship to that. And so it'd be kind of like, yeah, we need to do this now, but said in a way that that makes it for the other person to think, well, if I go there with you now, but you're bringing that there, how is that going to be like, what's the there hasn't been the alchemical transformation there, right? That cooking, there's something, there's something else to happen in the recipe before we go there. Might be the case that thing's going to go in the oven, but you've got to mix it together first or whatever. So really oh, yeah. ridiculous mixed metaphors. But the general point that I'm just wanting to put together out of all of this is just circling again and again on the criticality of, I mean, people talk about things like shadow and all the rest of it, and all that's totally relevant here. But the very, it seems to me like the living dream of a real philosophy of a transformative philosophy is one that integrates the totality in process. If we can't welcome each other into that process, it doesn't mean not confront or resist each other at certain times, but the subtleties of how we engage with ourselves and our others in this like deep emotional regard, which isn't just a rhetorics, you know, it's not a weak thing. It's, it's, it's like a spell of the soul that has to be sung. And it's pure or not, you know, it's pure or not. The instrument is tuned or it's not. And if it's not, then it will not contribute to the orchestra and the song will not be played as it could be. And it's that song in that potential totality which stretches us and enables that seeing of the whole and allows then a way in, to step in for all of those listening. If there's something that's too pained in there, and of course we all carry that, right? But, but if we all carry too much of that and it gets stuck, then it perverts our sense of how we play that instrumentation. We can create incredible, beautiful music. You know, it can be, it, it could be wonderful in many ways and it could be horrifying in many ways, which might be necessary, but it, it will be lacking something. I mean, it will be lacking something which could in fact be addressed. And it just seems like the stakes of the way that humanity must come to treat each other, like to address each other well, to participate with each other well. The stakes are so incredibly high and we're so, we're so shockingly far away from that, that maybe it's worth just circling around this again and again to make sure that in the broad philosophical approach we're taking as a distributed community really is including all that it could be, at least at this point, something like that. All right, thank you for listening. That was too much. That was magnificent. No, that was um, absolutely stunning. Thank you, Mr. Adlin. I'm always taken. Um, it's very interesting. You know, a lot of people talk about the ascension of Jesus, but they forget the part where he descended into hell, where there's this very interesting dynamic where Jesus actually descends into hell and then he rises into heaven. It's also extremely curious with the incarnation of Jesus that there's this notion that God had to come and experience thirst, that he had to experience suffering and hunger. Why? Like, why? Why does God need to experience those things? What value is there in experiencing those things? Well, following that Christian notion, there is something actually about pain that is essential for God to experience as a human being in that hypostatic union, as the Christian theology will talk about, that is necessary for God to actually be able to address humanity. That kind of flies in the face, though, of, say, thinking of, like, God being perfect, where you would think that actually pain and suffering would take away from God's omniscience, right? I mean, those would distract, right? Well, that's, what not, that's not what you see in the Christ story. You actually see a story of a notion that you can't actually get it truth, and you can't have a deep relationship without an experience of 
thirst, hunger, death, crucifixion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think we tend to forget, and it's very important that the birthplace of philosophy tends to be or should be devastation or something going wrong or error or pain, where people go into philosophy because they're like, I thought I formed the best society. I did everything they told me to do to create justice. And then everyone just killed each other. What's going on? Well, it's because you were pursuing justice according to your subjective standard. What other standard do we have? Well, maybe you should look to a platonic form. I don't know. Maybe I'll look to Aristotle's polis. Like you end up in the place where you're asking philosophical questions, not because you're just sitting around going, oh, I want to know the truth so I have power over people. No, it has to come. The birthplaces of philosophy come from a sense of how I thought the world worked ended up in me carrying myself in a, in a way that created drama or created problem. And yet I genuinely believed it was best. And from that place of the woundedness or the failure, then you enter the philosophical quest, but that must be the motivation. I do think that was something philosophy needs to learn. I was mentioning theology from theology. Like if you read the letters of Paul, it's always integrated with wounded sinners or people who are having fights at church because they're not sure if they should eat the bread from the pagans. Is it good? Well, it depends. And Paul's writing this letter in first Corinthians. He's like, well, it depends on the circumstance. Like theology is so deeply inherently very often, depending on what you know religion you're talking about, but it's really linked with um, the daily experience of people and their pain and what they're going through. You know, theology is not merely orthodoxy. It also has to be tied to orthopraxy, and it has to be that mixing of the vertical and the horizontal. Philosophy is always at its best when it does that. And in fact, when it does that, it is, it's extremely necessary precisely because of the problem that our natural of ideas of what is good and what makes the world a better place ends up being a terror, ends up being totalitarianism, ends up being a reign of terror, ends up being destructive, ends up getting us in a divorce, ends up getting us in fights. Without the meta dimension, you end up in those problems. And the people who do philosophy best, and I'm being very general, but I think it's a fair statement, the ones who end up doing philosophy best are the ones who understand those are the stakes. This is not merely the history of ideas. This is not merely about academic tenure. This is literally about a realization that the phenomenological experience of everyday life has a tendency to trick us in a manner that leads us into endless drama and trouble, all while we think we're pursuing the good, the true, and the beautiful. Because our ideas of the good and the beautiful and the truthful don't actually line up. So it's a, it's a matter of, of life and death, basically. It's a matter of wounds, and it's a matter of the groundedness. The reason the you should be seeking a big picture view is so you can see how all the pieces on the ground interconnect and interrelate and you go oh crap those pieces think they're doing what's good and they end up interrelating in a manner that wounds one another and then you fly back down to the ground to correct it you don't just stay up there watching the, the variables hit one another you take you go up to see how they interact and you go back to the ground to help it work and then you go underground to see if there's any sort of false grounding that is leading to that movement but it always has to be a movement up down to, and then back to the ground to help the things on the horizontal plane that is how philosophy is supposed to be that's how theology is supposed to be that's how meta thinking is supposed to be and if that is not done well then you're like flatlanders you know the book flatlanders where everyone's just kind of stuck on a two-dimensional plane 
Well, okay, on a two-dimensional plane, maybe if you're not encountering a lot of difference, maybe if you don't have the networks of the internet, maybe if you don't have to worry about the singularity, you can get along okay because everyone's separated. But when you have, but when you're acting like flatlanders and now all the difference and diversity is interconnected together, there's going to be a lot of butting heads and there's got to be a lot of wounding. And if the philosophical way of thinking is not an option, then the only way to respond to that violence is with violence. You're never going to say, oh, maybe we're misunderstanding one another. The moment you talk about misunderstanding, you're talking meta. Because no one, no one intentionally misunderstands. By definition, if you are doing X, you think X is good to do. If you understand a situation as Y, you experience Y as the truth. No one intentionally thinks of themselves as irrational, as misunderstanding of being evil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't mean they aren't irrational or aren't misunderstanding, but in order to detect that, there must be the meta dimension. And as you have a radical increase of quote unquote diversity and so on, the likelihood of misunderstanding becomes so high and so likely that it's just gonna, it's just basically probabilistically inevitable. And the only hope of avoiding it or to correct it or to better calibrate the system would be a meta dimension, both from the position of the mole people and the, and the angels, if you were, from up and down. Uh, without that, you're in a lot and lot and lot of, of trouble. But it's always going to come in service of returning to the ground and interacting with people. And for example, you know, we're talking the phenomenology of voice. If you take all this very, very seriously, then you learn, for example, that in a conversation with people, you can tell them a hundred times that you like them, but if you say one thing mean, that's all they think about. Or you learn the kind of tone of voice that you need to bring to the table that's going to make people feel presence in different things. Paying attention to the phenomenology of voice is necessary not to have unintentional misunderstanding, unintentional wounding, unintentional spreading of wounds, of which then, if you, if you don't have the meta dimension and you unintentionally wound people, you don't have the ability to jump up and see that you just did that or jump down and see that you just kind of cut the feet out from under them without realizing it. So it's almost like the worst of both worlds. Like the meta can teach you, you need the phenomenology of voice so that you do it. And if you don't have it, you don't even, you probably don't even have the ability to see the damage that is caused by not having an awareness of the experience of conversation and different things like that. So not only, as you say, are the stakes so incredibly high, but it seems to me that there are mistakes that if you make, you don't even have the capacity to see that you made them. And so then the likelihood of correcting them is very low. And then the likelihood to realize that you wounded people is very low, which means it's very likely that you'll keep wounding people who will wound you back, who will you'll then wound back in retaliation and you get cycles of the revenge sort of Icelandic literature and uh, these endless, basically without the meta and the grounding, it does seem like a return or an inevitable cycles of revenge, power and, and dynamics. But to your point, and then I'll give it back to you, this goes to show that philosophy, though, has to return to the ground. It has to be in the moment. It has to be in service of that, of that presencing. Or otherwise, let's say you go up to the meta dimension and you see the problematic dynamics. Well, if you never go back into them, it doesn't matter. You're not going to go back into them. And here's the issue. If you yourself have never been wounded or suffered, then you don't probably have the same incentive to go back down because you don't think it's a big deal. And also you don't have that pull of empathy or shared humanity. 
And the point I'll make, I always find it very interesting that the humanities are called the humanities, like philosophy, literature, and different things like that. As if there is something about these skills that are necessary for humanity and must be in service of humanity. But the issue is, it doesn't seem very natural for human beings to see the humanity in the humanities unless they've had an experience with thirst, suffering, and the wounds. That once they experience the wound, then the humanities become about humanity. And they remember that, rather they're up in the air, underground, or face to face. Really well said. So I thought maybe to bring into the fold something I intimated on a little bit, Hmm. um, but is one of these, seems to me to be an unseen contextual dynamic, which really influences the affordances of a particular field of possibility Mm. that a conversation or interaction or community is participating in. And in a way, addressing that that context, that contextual feature of our Mm. society is something which has been core to the philosophical work I've been seeking to do. And I've recently come to sort of affirmed a slightly different, altered short-term path in relationship to that. I, mm. um, I might have mentioned to you some months ago, I applied for some funding and I have done so on several occasions um, over the years. And the, the sort of phrase I was using to tie together what I was seeking funding to attempt was a participatory wisdom commons. Hmm. And I would see that in relationship, for instance, with the dynamics of state and market. And, uh, you know, it has a lot of affinity with uh, what people will find in the efforts of the, you know, the Vivekian world. And hmm. um, also a little bit of the thinking of people like Michelle Bowens. Not, I, I, I would love to talk to Michelle more in, in hmm. the future. That was something I wanted to discuss with, with you and some others some months ago hmm. before my father passed away and sort of things changed. But, um, and Greg Henriquez as well has had some conversations uh, in, in relationship to this a little bit. And mm. I introduced the phrase to him and he quite liked it. But it's not something I'm going to be, I'm talking about it now, but it's not something that's um, of the same primary effort, I would say, in, in the short term, uh, by at least the strategy that I outlined in what I was seeking mm. for funding, because it failed. And also because there's something so deep and so grand that we are in danger of really losing, seems to me, that arena for participation where in some sense the non-rivalry, that sorry, anti-rivalry seems to me essential to that space, that particular context. If we together can see more, if, if we can share our perspectives and in that way engage in, in a, in a parallax perspective see reality in some sense for more of what it is then at least in principle that move is something which can benefit both of us right it's it, we are helping each other to see and so from the perspective of growth and transformation becoming seems to be the case that religious structures in their in their best provide it's that basis of not only wisdom but but an embodied context for dwelling in the representation and presentation of that wisdom through various means 
can be movement and ritual and a whole bunch of things that might integrate different features of, of reality in the body and the psyche and all of that. That through that participation, we can come into some new mode of, at the very least, we can say seeing. And maybe we're not even sure that that's come from that particular experience. Like these, these deep movements of possibility, like the stoking of those embers and the enthusiasm and the, the joy that can bring, like the hope, like the kindling of that hope, like sharing in hope together is, is, a, is a critical thing. Not foolish hope and that kind of stuff, but, you know. So why am I saying this? Because one of the unseen elements of what enables any individually instantiated voice and try as we might to discern how to speak in a given context, how to listen, interact in general. And by voice, really, we mean like in terms of crafting and the co-crafting of that, really looking at that the totality of that relationship between perception and expression, really. We can look at the voice as being a core sort of medium to that. But the, the toning and, the, and the, the, the crafting of that channel and the becoming of that field and all, the, all and that relational field. Nick Jankel uses that term, relational field, in some good work. The context that I step into, well, most often it's been paid for. <laughs> most often it's been paid for, right? And the flows of that money, the flows of the resources, and ultimately the energetic flows of society as such, we could look at through the level of some of this, this is sort of the thinking that I'm developing. It's not a primary development of mine now. Unfortunately, if it, I wish it could be from an intellectual perspective, it's sort of on the sidelines, but this relationship between the market, the state and the commons and the participatory mm. wisdom commons, we could say market, state, religion, the rejuvenation of a shared context to participate in that actually enables us to do this this meta thing at all of actually to be together and see together at all and it's certainly been something i've been talking about for for a number of years spoke about it at the esoteric festival is trying to get towards it um but you know fundamentally i the the economics the energetics in, from that perspective, which enables the possibility for, for sharing in moments of criticality together, of bringing our energy to bear to craft something worthwhile, um, to actually address the broad project of culture making from a perspective that's grounded in the kind of philosophy that would seem to me to be as wise as I can presently see, acknowledging a dialogic, reflexive, ongoing process with that, this must be incorporated into not only the analysis, but also our direct sort of efforts for response, like to really be attendant to, it's simple to say, I mean, everybody talks about incentives, of course, I'm not just talking about incentives, not incentives in, in terms of like that extrinsic motivation that you were speaking about before we recorded. But what is that context which really allows then intrinsic motivation to find its own its own way, like as the roots of a tree do through the soil, in some sense, it's 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 um it's not just as the tree wills it's also in relationship with the fungi and all the rest of it but in some sense there's a habitat for that and as the trees are to the fungi substructure there's an, a deep sense as far as i understand it at least not being an expert in this whatsoever there's an anti-rivalry there there's a there's a mutual becoming that, that affords in that connection then between the ground and the meta as the tree's roots go into the soil so, you know, people have been trying to come in and to offer some names and some understandings and um, ways to look at sort of uh, new forms or old forms or revivified forms of religion. 
so samta as i mentioned this term participatory wisdom commons but the subtleties of the energetics which um are present in a context and i mean money but i also mean it's it's all of the stuff that it's the it's the affiliations that come with that space it's the amount of time we have it's the there's so much that is the that 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 attending to that is is like the magic before the magic you know it's like Absolutely. the spell isn't really even a spell it was just that extra ingredient into the cauldron but you're not going to have the bloody potion unless you've got the whole cauldron there right and so it's just such a big deal all of that and so that the shadow of the context for engaging in any of this at all and the, the, the way resources come into that like as a culture in general it's truly shocking it's 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 so shocking like i was trying to explain this a little bit like to some people at a at a party the other day we were sitting around a fire uh they're intelligent open people they're not people who engage in the philosophical discourse certainly not in the online philosophical discourse and i was sort of looking at the fire with them and i was looking at and i was sort of trying to bite away in that we'd been joking about socks for like half an hour and i was enjoying it but i wanted to amp it up you know and uh, <laughs> as much as i love a good joke about socks and I was trying, I was like, what is a way maybe to like feel that was resonant with the moment that was right present there to sort of give a sense of how I was looking at things and why it was important to me. And the fire was burning. And of course the branches at the top were burning quicker than the ones at the bottom and at the bottom were logs, you know, and those were burning through as well. And, and the logs, you know, the, the rest of the fire is of course sitting upon the logs. But it's, I said, it's shocking to me the level, it's like we've, it's like we've forgotten to replace the deep logs of the fire of our culture. And in each one of us, there's the possibility for kindling, right? We can each start fires, but right now those logs, it's like, we don't even care. It's, we don't even care. We're so concerned with the branches at the top. And it's just shocking to me, like why all this effort into this expression? Not that many people, you know, some people enjoy, and I've, I've made more friends than I have a podcast listeners. We'll put it like that, which is something I, is a beautiful thing. But also I know that, I know that it's not my bloody voice, right? That the majority of people in the world are going to hear and, and it'll be their portal to understanding. But so much effort I'm putting in and we're putting into this conversation. And it's like, yeah, it, it fucking deserves a lot of effort. It remains shocking to me. Like my whole life has been so intimately bound to this, you could say the phenomenology of voice, at least insofar as the recognition of when and when something is not welcome or interesting or meaningful to say, but at the same time, having that sense, nevertheless, of that orientation to what is meaningful. And right now it's just like, those logs are still fucking burning out. There's still, there's not much of them left. And it's just felt like that to me for so long, like our very way, everything about how we even relate to those logs is peppered with delusion and it's peppered with our own lack of truly affirming our own dignity to care about being of that fire, to care about tending the fire. We don't feel worthy to even look into the fire. So you mentioned Plato's cave and coming out of it and maybe that's a nice segue. We don't feel worthy to do anything else other than just look dimly at the shadows as we numb ourselves. And that brings us back more towards the inner phenomenological and kind of like the, 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 the inside out opportunity we always have to, to engage in, in life and to be that which is creativity and is in influence. But, you know, obviously the energetics are crucial to consider as the other side. And that's what I began talking about. So 
Anyway, over to you. That was magnificent. Magnificent. First off, you mentioned a lot of wonderful people. I mean, I love Maquette when he with, with Cadell and the Commons and uh, Mr. Bard and you mentioned Mr. Dr. Henriquez and Mr. Ebert. So a few that one, uh, one of the reasons why is just a little note first, the phenomenology of voice is very interesting to me is because the very experience of speaking points to something that's not here. And that in speaking, it points to something away itself that you only think to look at because there's this thing that's not quite it. When I say the mm -hmm. word cat, it's not the thing cat. And yet the only reason you think about the, the kind of experience of this present absence, quote unquote, lack, you know, a present absence is because of a, a missing. There's this weird thing when you pay attention to the very experience of language, it points to those logs. And then the question becomes, why is that? What is the nature of human beings to primarily organize themselves according to a language that in its very experience seems to suggest that there's a something that matters that's not here that makes what is here even possible? And I think that's important to note. So a few things, um, that, you know, now I've always wanted to go back and do like a really long paper on a book called Personal Knowledge by uh, Pommier. I think he's very important. But the book I will mention, I think um, there's a book called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. And the notion is that culture in the world that you are in and your environments is always working on your loves. So when you go to the mall, it's kind of a sacramental experience because the mall is making you say like clothing or like material goods, and it makes you love those things. And so then you develop habits of buying those things. So the connection is environments work on loves, which create habits and your habits become who you are, you basically are your habits. And so when you're talking about this communicative um, space, that's exactly right. You are always, you know, there is this note, and Daniel Frager's book on ontological design is lovely um, and extremely fantastic on this point. Like everything around you is working on the way you think about the world and you carry yourself in the world. Not merely externally, it becomes basically part of you. And if you use that notion that your environment works on your loves, which creates your habits, well, you basically are your habits because your habits are what you do when you don't think about it. And they're kind of the framing of your conscious thoughts. They're the kind of orientations you have when you're not paying attention to your orientation. And so the notion of your environments and your spaces and your technology and so on is very, very important. You are always already having your loves be worked on and what you think about doing and so on and so forth. So if you don't think about that, you're in trouble. And so likewise, you're talking about money in the economic environment. Well, if you are surrounded in an environment that is making you um, think in terms of extrinsic motivation or making you position your loves toward things that are extrinsic from you, say a new car, just to use an obvious example or something, then you are going to develop habits of making the money so that you can get the car. So your economic environment works on what you desire, which then shapes your habits, and then that's your life because your habits end up being what you do. And so there is a question to be said about if you want to transform people's habits, you have to transform their economic environment. And that could get you into the subject of Web 3.0 and the movement toward intrinsic motivation, which I think actually would be a big component of learning how to accurately navigate these pluralistic spaces where communicative rationality as Habermas talks about is necessary or substantive democracy as James Hunter talks about. But all of that will be very, very, very difficult to do if people's loves have not changed because they will still be habituated 
to think and to desire tribal politics and tribal community and alienating of others. So the connection you're drawing between environment, loves, habits, and ergo motivation is very real. Uh, James K. Hunter is very good. I think Daniel Frege's book on ontological design plays into this. And I do think Mikhail uh, Pommier's book on personal knowledge talks about all this. So it's all quite connected. So then the question becomes, well, to know, the only way to even realize what I just said would require a certain meta dimension, a certain philosophical dimension. You're not even, why would you ever suspect there is some connection between your environments and your habits? Why would you ever suspect that? Never does your environment tell you that. Never does the, the mall tell you that it's working on your habits. And yet it is. The only way you would realize that is a meta dimension. And that is where there might be the possibility of owning the environment and shaping the environments so that you can have your desire change. Because what people will do is they'll say, well, I'm gonna change my habits, but not change their environment. Well, then you don't change your habits because the environment is still reinforcing the old habits, for example, and the old desires and so on and so forth. So basically, if we're saying we want a new politic or a new community or a new engaging with others in the world, well, then you have to think about how you participate in the socioeconomic order. You have to think about the political environments you put yourself in, the technological environments you put yourself in, because all of these things are always already working on your desires and forming your habits as such. So they all go together. And that is also hard to say, again, I alluded to at the beginning, what's so interesting to me with the experience of speaking is that speaking is always this presence, this always this absent presence. Like, like I was funny because I knew we were going to talk and I was thinking on the porch, this sounds really weird. I'm like, what exactly is a word? And I know that sounds so weird, but it's like, what is a word? Like not, and you could say, well, cat. No, 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 no. Okay, I'm not talking about like a word. I'm talking about words. Like, what are they? They're so weird. Like, what are expressions? Obviously we can get into sign language, obviously we can get into written word, but like, what do we do when we express? Like, like it's not because we're always like, yeah, we can talk about the objects of expression like cat. But when we express, there's this some sort of like, I'm trying to let you occupy a space that is not here, but it's in me and I want you to be part of it as well. So when I tell you about the black cat I saw down at the barn, yeah, sure, it's about the black cat I saw down at the barn, but it's also a kind of interesting invitation for you to occupy a space that I have inside of me that I also want you to participate in. And it's very strange. It's also really strange because if we take seriously that the birth of language, you know, Walker Percy will talk about the Helen Keller moment and the moment where she got language and it's like, boom, it's like an entirely ontological revolution. So likewise, the creation of language seems to be the birth of the human. There's something about language that is really, really unique to the human, I, you know, I'm not gonna try to get into speciesism or something like that, but there's something about language that is very unique. Well, what is language? Well, obviously the commu you know, signifier signified. Okay, 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 okay. But, but, but if we move beyond signifier, because the moment you, you make it a signifier, you look away from language, right? You're looking at the objects of language. But if you really look at what expression does, it's this radical, it's almost inherently invitational. Now you could say, well, what, what, wait a minute, Daniel, like, don't you have words in your head? Yeah, that's what's got, they are in my head, but it's different from the speaking. Like the experience of voice is a, I want you, Tim, to enter into a space that I know you can't enter into because you can't be at the barn at two o'clock this afternoon to see the black cat there. That is not possible. 
but I want to, I want to act as if you can be there. So there's an inherent failure there. There's an inherent, but that failure also points to inner worlds that precisely because I'm willing to do something that fails, I point to. Like if I didn't fail, this is the funny thing. If I never tried to speak to you because I was like, oh, words never work. They always fail. What's the point? Then funny enough, you would never think you were missing anything. That's what's kind of funny. The failure points to the missing, where if I didn't do that, then it wouldn't point to these inner worlds that are going on. And so what's also so interesting is that the very phenomenology of voice and speaking suggests that there's a meta dimension that's going on with human beings that we are all trying really, really hard to invite each other into and to be part of knowing that we can never succeed at doing it. So then the question becomes the following. We have to do it because we have to be in community and we have to learn to live with people different from us. So what are the spaces that can incubate desire desires to fail and to fail better and to create habits where we become more skillful at doing that and not get discouraged. I think that's kind of the big part is like the more and more you encounter different people, the more the failure of them to enter into your values because their values are so different from you, the, the fact of having them enter to your world because they live in Australia or why you're in Virginia, that failure can become increasingly acute. So we have to create spaces that will have us desire that failure and see the good in it and to create habits where we get better at it. But very often we don't talk about communication as desiring failure and habituating ourselves to be good at failure and habituating ourselves with being comfortable with the best we can ever give one another are glimpses and glimmers. The problem is when we think about words as I'm communicating you cat, and I think of it, I've told you about a cat, I succeeded. We experience language as a success. We always experience it as an, a success when really it's always a failure. But the problem is this, since I experience it as a success, I experience, I experience you as ought to get it. I experience you yes. as ought to get it. But the more difference increases, the more that's not going to be the case. So how do I habituate myself to being comfortable with people not getting it and not thinking they're stupid and actually getting excited about the opportunity to help other people get it more and more, all of which points to a great mystery, really. Like, what is this thing that humans can do that can point to something that's not here and yet is here? What is this thing that we do when we speak that is suggesting that there's a reality that's not around and yet we're living in it? There's this massive mystery. And to me, when speaking about the big topics becomes the outline of that mystery, that's how you avoid the politics of power and violence. Because otherwise, if it's not in observance of addressing that mystery, all we're trying to do is dominate. All we're trying to do is politically power over one another. But if we can create spaces to desire the mystery and habituate ourselves by that desires to get better at that mystery, then it will be possible to craft voice in a manner that crafts us. Oh, fuck yeah, man. That was so good. That was so good. That was so good. So, I mean, one thing that sticks out like very, very easily there is that and as I said at the beginning, as you, so you, you brought it around so well, because I remember I expressed at the beginning experiencing my own speaking as a kind of failure, something like that. I've expressed it otherwise as like dying into a sentence, something. And, um, you know, and I can certainly experience the failure of my own expression to, 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 to properly represent, right? It's just a glimmer. And then I can come have a relationship with that and whatever. But, but I do notice, and this is a quality of listening, then I would, I have suggested before as like a, in the mode of teaching as a lesson, as a kind, 
you know, many people understand it, of course, but there's a mode of listening and a mode of appreciating someone else speaking. And sometimes it's very easy, right? Because someone's just, they're playing it so well. But it seems to be much easier to appreciate the success of someone else's expression. It's like I don't judge it by that same standard of failure, right? Because I hear it and I not only can I appreciate you nailing it, and I was actually thinking about, well, potential circumstances. I and mean, as you're speaking to, we're, we're, you know, lighting up possibilities for us here. And, and we know those possibilities are seeking ultimately to like, can the roots of the tree go that way? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, is it, is it going to be possible for this thing to keep on going? And I'm thinking about those instances in life where of just witnessing someone absolutely nail it. And it doesn't mean it's got to be the most artful, philosophical, poetic intellect. It doesn't have to be doesn't have to be like that it can just it can just be saying as best they could attending to as best they could that which they were seeking to speak which was valuable for them you know and valuable for others that it's like that that movement whatever we want to call it we want to call it a birthing or a dying it's something that's like the magic of that renewal of possibility for that whole mystery to become somehow for those who are in relationship to it worth it you know that life is worth it in relationship to that mystery and what's so important is today you know because i we've you know to outline why the stakes are so high the stakes are very high the name of the game would seem to be critically important which is based on the phenomenology of voice as we've outlined is to create spaces where people love that that you just described, and they habituate themselves to doing that and desire to do that and to observe that and to honor and address that quote unquote performance, that presentation, that present scene. Yeah. That is what needs to be done if we're going to, in fact, make it, dare I say, or to under the plural, like to love that effort. That bringing yes. forth to love yes. it and habituate ourselves to it and to create spaces where that our desire that work on us in a manner that makes that our desire yes. and to to presence it. And it can reveal truth as everyone's yes. rather than just someone's in competition with someone else's. Yes. You yes. know, that we can all participate in truth. This is one of the things I've been fortunate enough to to um I mean, as those people listening to this podcast will be, and as of course you have, but you know, I've encountered many brilliant minds, souls, hearts in, in writing, in person, in speaking, and many incredible perspectives that have seen very deeply into the nature of things, at least insofar as that illumined something for me that helped me to see. And um, maybe it wasn't the whole story, but it was an important part of the journey. And sometimes it seems like uh, it's more than just an important part of the journey. Sometimes it seems like we've come to a place where there is understanding available to us, if only we could be worthy of it, which shines so deeply into the structure of things, which is, is truly profound. And at this point, it's as if it's Everest, you know, and it's like, well, it is just the tallest mountain. Um, that is just the structure of what we got. And uh, once someone's seen it and pointed at it, it's like, yeah, well, we're pointing at the same thing here, right? It's Everest, right? In some sense, it seems like there's truth. Now, I'm not trying to make uh, too much of a point about truth here, but one of the things metaphors have used in the past to sort of in group conversations to try and communicate this point, and it links up very importantly because it's it's something that, well, when someone shares a piece of understanding, shares an insight, it's like, well, that's this person's view, right? 
and well, if they've said it and they've named the thing, they've named that thing that's now pointed at and then that's truthful. And then we're, how can I be in relationship? Like I want to be in relationship to the, to the real thing. I want to be in relationship to with, with that truth, which isn't theirs. It's just something they've come upon, right? right? In some important sense. And we can confuse ourselves. We spoke about this in the naming the nameless mm. conversation, but in terms of going up Everest, it's like there are parts on that journey up Everest where you, you go through these, um, I don't know what exactly what they're called. They're like shifting sheets of ice so yeah. that it might be one thing. It can't be an eternal path, you know, overnight, there might be an avalanche, something might shift. You have to reforge the path to get to the top of Everest. And so in that sense, to be in relationship with, let's say the most truthful that one, <laughs> that one can be is actually to cultivate a relationship of, of truth with that. Like yes. it is, it is for all of us to express what is true. And truly it's, it seems to be the case that we can do so over and over again, and we can rejuvenate it. I mean, one of the things that I have to be careful with myself sometimes, and I mean, there are so many, like I, I was kind of wondering, you know, I, I don't get invited to many podcasts or to speak on many things. And, and I'm not saying I should be, but one of the reasons is I think you it's should be. It's, it's, so, like a... <laughs> well, thank you. But one, one of the reasons is it's not, it's not immediately clear, like what it is I have to say or what it is I know. What would you talk to me about? It's like, I can talk actually about quite a lot of things, you know, uh, I think. But um, I don't even relate to myself like that. I think I do have quite a bit of content in me, but I'm not so attached to it in general. Partly that reason is, is because what, what I'm seeking to express and mentioned it with a humility thing. I mean, maybe it's like that. It's like a beautiful song or an improvisation or something like that. They're like, there is music and we can play it or not, you know, and it's not for me just to repeat the same things in exactly the same way in that scripted mode. It's precisely not actually communicating from and, and of and to that very thing, which is meaningful to even talk about. It's like, it's, it's right now that there is content we could talk about. We've spoken about content in this, you know, I've, I've even mentioned concepts of things that I take to be sort of intellectual work. And, and it just so happens that, you know, in some contexts, I consider myself a philosopher who likes to do that stuff, but that's really not the point of this conversation in some sense that's not really the point of the phenomenology of voice as you've sort of introduced it and it's present in voicecraft and what have you it's like it seems like like one of the fundamental revolutions we we have to undergo is a return if it's a return i don't know i can't talk about the past too much really we have to create as you say these contexts for interaction where truthfulness and the truth as such is available to to join in, right? That the crafting of our own voice in relation to that is just as worthy. It might not know as much in some sense, might not have all the knowledge or all the content, but there's something about the, I don't know, I, I mean, you, you put it all so well, but there's, there's something at least more fundamental than, when you talk about words, you talk about words, it, it's the living of the words, you know, it's the life of them. It's, it's, it's the, it's the truth as a fucking hope as much as it is not just a hope in some bullshit sense, but like the very courage to step forward. We have to dignify ourselves and each other. Like we have to do that if we're to live together and die together in any meaningful way and live again, right? We have to dignify each other. And that means that we are all involved in truth. We are truth. <laughs> we are truth. 
So that has to be granted as an affordance for presencing in the channel. It doesn't mean that people just get to run away with it. Like there's so much wisdom and, and maturity that obviously comes in, but it just feels like that we've lost the, we've lost the, we don't understand or it doesn't, we do not dignify dignity. We've lost the meaning of dignity in some important sense in, in culture. Well, a few things. Um, so first off, if I, if I be bold, um, I think the thing that you're trying to describe is the dynamic of self-forgetfulness where people are lost in something greater than themselves that actually brings out a certain way of interacting that when you see seems quite critical for forming new communities that can handle the world we're in. But the moment you speak about it, you're speaking, you're looking at the ray of light, not through the ray of light. So for example, if this mm. is the ground, that you're trying to get at with voicecraft, the moment you talk about it, it's like something comes up and now you have to talk about that and you name it, it goes back and then it comes back up. And you're always trying to get to that. I think um, it's interesting because very often in what's called Dialogos conversations are going to be about very big topics like um, you know Web 3.0, Ukraine or different things. You see this very unique conversational dynamic come out. It tends to come out in philosophical subjects because the subjects themselves can be so complex and big that if you think too much about yourself, you lose track. So it naturally creates a dynamic of people getting lost in the magic of the dynamic mm -hmm. itself. And you go, there it is. There you get It's just like, oh, Tim, you like, yo, you're really interested in a... Um, Web 3.0, it's like, yes, that's a really important thing. But there's something about talking about big stuff, you know, big topics that creates a certain dynamic of people interacting and speaking that seems really, really important. And I want to get at that. I want to get at that. But but the moment you speak about it, you're not doing it, right? We talked at the very beginning, the moment you're meta, you're not in. So it's not that. And yet you want to point at that. And yet you see it when it's about, say, when people are talking about, Kant's Numenon or Hegel, you know, they're thinking so hard to try to, you know, to keep Kant and Hegel and different things. Boom, self-forgetfulness, there it is. That's, that's it. And they're like, what? And it, it tends to be about philosophy be precisely because that inherently requires a certain sort of engagement where that flow, that intrinsic motivation, that dynamic can come out. The question is the following. Does it have to be about philosophy? Could it possibly be about community? Could you possibly even talk about, say, going to the grocery store and really, truly be engaged in even the, dare I say, magic about going to the grocery store, that even that topic could be something that you could forget yourself in and relate to in a dynamic matter that creates a different sort of presencing, that creates a different sort of being in it, being in the river, in the flow, which again, the nature of a lot of the philosophical subjects is if you're not in the flow, then you're lost, you know, that you're not going to be able to go. And so the dynamic, this fascinating dynamic tends to emerge in those contexts. And the question for me that's so fascinating is, is it possible to create environments that create habits in people of that dynamic that isn't just about philosophy, but could just be like everyday conversation? could be everyday communication with dynamics, with people and different things like that. It seems to require depth because there's something about that meta, that vertical up and down that brings you to that place. But what's interesting to think is, is the dialogos, if that's the language, that, that being taken in, is that necessarily a philosophical under, underpinning? I mean, you see it in jazz music. You see it in art, you see it in the great story performances. You know, it's, it's kind of like as you're talking, you know how we talk about like at an open mic, you'll have a dance performance, 
You'll have a mu music performance. It's almost like there's a new kind of performance you want to talk about, which is the bringing forth performance. Someone who can come on, you know, someone, the ability to bring forth the thing, the mystery, this dynamic that we're trying to trace out as a kind of like ability, as a kind of the bringing forth. And it's interesting too, when you're talking about this thing, in theology, there's this notion that if you love God, you learn to love your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, you learn to love God and God is everything. So you're actually loving your neighbor like a particular person helps you love humanity and loving God helps you love humanity and the vertical and the horizontal go together. So likewise, there's this notion that learning how to present yourself with the mystery and bringing forth the mystery has an interesting way of great of connecting you with everyone else. Like you were talking about how it's not it's like they're talking about the truth, right? It feels like they're taking water from a river that everyone else is taking it from, but you can't see the river. You can only see the cups of water, so it makes it look like right. it's separate in those people. But if you can remember this thing that language points to that is the present absent, and you experience those cups of water as all coming from the same stream, and the bringing it forth is an acknowledgement of the same stream, there's an interconnectability that emerges. Yes of which in today's incredibly tribal, globalized, neoliberal world, that sense of interconnectability seems utterly, utterly critical. And it seems to be tied to the ability to work on people's desires and habits to make them love the bringing it forth, the seeing of the bringing it forth, and the seeing of the entire world of bringing it forth. I'm always taken by, if you read some of the mystical, whether Sufi or Christian or Dipathy, this notion that um, even in the wind going through the trees, there's something being, some mystery, some be, something being expressed there that you want to find and that you want to see, or that when you see a great work of art, there's something there that you're like, what was it? And then, it, and then it's gone, but it was there, yeah. that there-ness that you're always trying to capture. And the name of the game is, can human beings learn to present themselves in the world and with other people that they create habits of bringing that there forth so that we can live more in light of it. Because if we don't learn to live more in light of it, it would seem as if the world will continue to crack. So the bringing of it forth would seem to be the art form that is of the utmost importance for us all to cultivate. Yes, beautiful. Yes, to know ourselves as love and in as many of its forms as we have the opportunity to. Where love is that at once a kind of, uh, it's the stream that moves through you, right? It's, it's the wellspring that we are and also return to. And we can certainly feel as though we lose our way and experience a whole bunch of other things. But yeah, uh, I just, it's, it's funny because the mystery, philosophy, all the words to say, and I've been pretty enthusiastic th saying things about truth here and there, you know. Truth is good. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm joining you in trying to, trying to gesture at the thing from enough of an outside in coordination of the thing while making sure to remain in an inside out process of it at the same time. Not to interrupt, it, I, I meant to mention the mystical, like a lot of this to me parallels with this interesting mystical kind of pursuit that you see in some, some traditions, where is this notion of you're living your life so that you condition yourself to catch these glimmers where it's like a rip in the veil of reality where you see something and then it's gone, but you saw it. And the fact that you saw it then changes the entire horizon of possibility 
that can occur in the world. So for example, if once in your life, once in your life, you see a green cat, just once, well, now the world becomes a place where green cats are possible, right? You know, that one experience changes it everything. So when you have these experiences of the bringing it forth, it's like, a, it's like you see something and now the world is a place where that bringing it forth is there. And that means there must be something that's being brought forth, something that's in the world, but not of it, something that's there lurking behind the veil of reality almost, lurking behind it all that can be brought forth in a beautiful, good, in a true way. Now the question becomes like, what is that thing? You know, what is the way to mediate it in a manner that humans can handle or what, what is it exactly? But it's so interesting because every time you speak, it points to a thing that's not there. And the very experience this constant sort of failure to bring forth a thing that's not there. But the very fact you're failing to bring forth a thing that's not there means that there's a thing that's not here. And that means there yes. is ways of life to better cultivate relationship with that thing that we're all relating to because we're all trying to speak to one another. And so it's a shared common experience. It becomes a common way of being that we all are occupying yes. in that the more we come to terms with it, the more we can relate. And the more that we can see that we're all trying to bring it forth and to live nice. in light of that thing that we're bringing forth and to, and to remember that thing that we brought forth so that we can carry that memory and transform the horizon and possibilities and meaning of even our trip to the grocery store. Yeah, I mean, beautifully said. Uh, a rather comical image that comes to mind. Uh, and it's perhaps a tiny bit of a tangent, but maybe not really. Every once in a while, I'll get into listening to Balkan music, mm. uh, the kind of music that you can imagine sort of a drunken old man in a suit dancing to in a sort of like a drunken way. It's got a joy to it, but it also has a melancholy to it. And I don't oh, yeah. necessarily want to bring the melancholy, maybe the melancholy. I mean, that's part of it. And then never quite making it, never quite being able to say. And so there's this drunken, joyful it's joyful in the sense that it's it's affirming life in the face mm. of the of the tragedy of it in some sense and so he's kind of rocking around and and i love those moments there's something about that image from the shamanic perspective with respect to um, mediation of tribes mediation of conflict that kind of thing note here on comedians and the fool as being able to be with tension and kind of be seen yeah. to be an idiot you know in relationship to not being able to stand up straight for instance like you know just flapping about and whatever fall and whatever embarrassing thing there's a sense of we uh as that careening occurs beyond the line of what is felt to be the overton window overton zone mm. of respectable status savvy society and that might even fall within the lines of what would be considered conflict or like where that some of that critical energy is there's a sense in which um the level of drunken master type nature of a oh, yeah. dancer who almost loses the balance. And it's in that refinding, it's in that, but also the trust of it. Like we find out about, it's like there's an invitation we can make to each other that's like, trust me in the silence here. Can we have faith in each other that in this silence of my inevitable forgetting, right an inevitable failure to present that image of the mystery of what wants to be spoken here not only to hold faith in myself to refine to remember and in some sense as well to forget that part of myself that's concerned about whether or not i'll remember and so forget enough to actually remember 
to trust each other in that. And and so, I mean, maybe this loops back if, if those of those of you who have stayed with us um, watching this, you know, like at the beginning, because Daniel and I, we were, we were speaking for about 40 minutes and we turned the recording <laughs> button on and, and you asked me a question. We had that moment of silence. I wasn't sure if you were going to say something. And I don't think there's ever been like a moment of uncertain who was going to speak silence between us in any conversation we've ever had ever, right? <laughs> like ever. But, but like, you know, um, and I was just wondering, because it's the first time I've been on something where you've been the host, often I've been hosting or you've been on something that's been hosted otherwise. And so I'm just kind of giving a bit of space to see, is that what I'm trying to know not to launch into something too quickly? And there's a moment there and it's like, hang on a second, audience, hang on a second, what's their expectation, all of that. And I never got quite to link back in because I said at the beginning, well, we can begin. I began right there and, and it was felt like a humility of recognizing the inadequacy to presence something valuable for the audience, right? Because that's, if this wasn't valuable, then this is not appropriate. <laughs> if, if, if we're not oriented to obviously that's valuing right. each other at the very least and ourselves and all the rest of it, then why, then why be doing it? But, but now, now a couple hours later, we can begin to look at the loop there and it is in, it's, it's, and, and so there's a, there's a real moment of truth there as the real of an absence or, or a lack could be potentially perceived as like a failure, you know, but it's also an invitation to trust. And it, it, it's that invitation back into humility in relationship to that. And so truth and, and humility, there's like a, there's a deep, tr in that sense, and the cliche, there's a deep truth in not knowing. So the actual presentation to being in relation with others, not knowing, like not possessing some wonderful, contentful truth, and yet in the humility of so stepping forward and yes. nevertheless crafting something, there is truth being presented, right? And, and that just, it, it, what that means, like what that can offer to the flow, to the possibility. I mean, it's, um, it could be the most, I mean, as people say, it's good to say, I don't know, but you know, there's levels of the really reckoning with that. I don't know. And, um, and presencing that and letting that be known. And that truly is powerful because it's in that gap, obviously that, well, then we can start talking about our chemical transformation and this kind of thing and, and, and trans transformative philosophy. So. Well, it's wonderful about it because in that space, you know, Paul Tillich will talk about the courage to be and ultimate concern, which I always really like. And there is something about the courage to be. What's so wonderful is about that dynamic of, all right, say something. What are you going to do? You have two choices. Don't say something or say something. And you see that sort of entering into. Um, it, it is kind of like when you talk about, say, if you're talking about religion, there's this, it's like, okay, if you go to that temple, you might actually encounter a God and then you're going to have to change everything. Or you can just not. So what do you want to do? Or likewise, if you, you know, in psychoanalysis, there's this idea of you can go into your subconscious and find out what's there, but then you might find out what's there. Do you want to do it? Do you really want to do it? And, and it's like, maybe you should just never explore it, right? Because there's always, well, you know, you were talking about the drunkenness. I really like that, you know, because there's a few things we were talking about at the beginning, how there's this problem when it's just like a single value. You know, Isaiah Berlin will talk about monism and it's the idea that freedom is the ultimate value. Well, actually, you don't want a society where people's free all the time because then they could say, steal from you because they're free to do anything. You say, well, you want a society of justice all the time. Do you really never want grace? You know, but do you always want grace? Because there is crime, right? So there's this notion that you need a, a balance of different um, values. 
Well, similarly, we actually tend to be emotional monists, where we tend to think of all we need is happiness or all we need is joy, when really actually the most meaningful experiences or most beautiful music are these wild mixture of melancholy, sadness, and joy. It's not just one of them. But we tend to get confused because we tend to think about the world in terms of a kind of emotional monism, where actually the most beautiful things do entail a certain level of sadness to them. And there's something about the experience of really deep sadness that actually is good. It's very strange. But it's not strange if you understand that human beings are full creatures and they're not emotional monists per se. The reason I think this is important is because the experience of bringing it forth does not fit into an emotional monist framework. It is an act of facing fear. It's an act of happiness. It's an, ex it's an act of um, anxiety, but it's also an act of beauty. So the kind of presencing that you're describing does not fit into a simple emotional monism. If you say, does it feel good? Oh, we should do it because it feels good. Well, no, not in that beginning. You don't know what you're gonna say. <laughs> um, well, we should do it because it's the right thing to do. Well, we don't even know what we're gonna do. So how do you know that it's the right thing to do? It doesn't fit into a simple monistic emotional justification. It only fits into an experiential justification. Well, that means you have to do it. You have to come and see. I'm always, you know, Jesus is like, come and see, right? Come and see, you're not gonna get it unless you come and see. But then of course, it's like, well, if you wanna get God, you gotta come in the temple. But once you come to the temple, you can't forget God. It's like seeing the green cat. Your horizons change forever, right? Mm -hmm. You know, once you've seen the cat once, everything changes. Well, likewise, once you have the experience of the courage to be or the bringing it forth or the going into the cathedral, well, then that's your life has changed forever because you now know that that is a possibility in the horizon of your life. And that is something you could do. And the question becomes, do you do it or do you not do it? And that's the courage mm. to be. Mm. Yeah, beautifully said. Man. I'm losing my so voice good. now because I've had so much fun speaking with you. You can probably yeah. hear it. Yeah, well, maybe it's over to you. I um, I was not going to end this conversation uh, because it's... Well, I'm yeah. not going to end it either. I don't want to, so... But, but, maybe, but maybe we should then, if you're losing your voice, because we I, could just go on. I mean, I can't craft it if I lose it, do I? I can't craft it if I lose it, do you? Well, uh, we'll, have, we'll have, have to, to do it again, it. won't we? Um, yeah. I took a lot of notes because I, I'm really fascinated with the dynamic that you're pointing... To me, the dynamic that you're pointing at that comes out in the self-forgetfulness that is a glimmer of the bringing it forth that the fact that you glimpse it mean it is possible. And if it is possible, then it is worth pursuing. And the question becomes a socioeconomic structure that can be designed to work on people's desires so that they habituate themselves to a place of bringing it forth and loving the bringing it forth so that then they craft their voice and craft their listening to enter into spaces where the bringing it forth can occur so that we don't end up as just that angel of history pulled on the thread to this who knows what yeah. pile of debris that instead that maybe we can be the rose and fire that is one and neither consume that we can rise to the occasion and find out that all things are new and that we can make all things new oh man yeah absolutely and um yeah your voice is it's <laughs> you can hear completely out it's almost, I that's like appropriate because it was the phenomenology of voice it's the form the medium is the message the formal it's it's like art so it's formal formal manifestation 
It's perfect. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the journey. In October this year, with week one beginning on October 10 and orientation commencing one week before that on the 3rd, you have the opportunity to participate in a course that's been developed to create an on-ramp into participation in conversations and relationships which resonate with the spirit of sincerity and mystery shared in the dialogue you've just listened to. But that's far from all. The course is named Transformative Philosophy, and it brings together an exceptional faculty to support a context for real development of capacity to encounter, navigate, and metabolize different perspectives and worldviews, while crafting your voice and sharing creatively with peers. There's so much more you can read or watch to get a sense of what you'll meet in the course, and to do so, you can go to voicecraft.io academy. But at the end of the day, this is a process to step into, to encounter yourself in, and embark on a journey with others, where the destination cannot be foretold. For the right people, this is a rare opportunity. Places are filling up, so now is the time to step aboard. Voicecraft.io academy is where to go. Okay, until next time. <laughs>